I said before, I always feel like such a rebel when the song leader says, take a seat, and I stand up. But at any rate, good morning. Please be taking out your Bibles and turning, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians <coughs> chapter 6. Let me just say real briefly that it was an incredible weekend in affirming the faith. And for those of you uh, that would like to access the lessons, they're all going to be posted online. Uh, some fantastic faith-building, life-changing lessons were presented at Affirming the Faith. They are going to all be posted online shortly at Affirming the Faith, and then the letters OK.com. <coughs> In Ephesians chapter 6, we have what we often refer to as the section on the full armor of God. This text served as the theme of the marriage seminar that I did here a while ago. It has also served as the foundation for many Bible classes, sermons, VBSs, and other things. It is a very popular and, and well-used section of Scripture. But there's one element of this passage that is still vital to our victory, but it's one that we often don't pay a lot of attention to. We often overlook it, perhaps through habit, maybe through tradition, maybe because the Apostle Paul did not specifically attach a specific article of armor to it. But it is still vital to our victory. You will notice with me, please, that after the admonitions to put on the full armor of God that the Apostle Paul tells our brethren in first century Ephesus in verses 10 through 16. Look at verses 17 and following. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Notice, and that's usually where we cut it, right there. But notice that the sentence doesn't end there. Even though that's the last item that he attaches a specific article of armor to, the sentence continues. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. He says pray all the time for the saints, pray in the Spirit, be watchful, be diligent, and for me. Notice verse 19, and for me, Paul says that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Please notice that neither the sentence nor the context of winning the battle stops at the end of verse 17. It doesn't stop there. Verses 18 through 20 clearly tell us that another weapon that is vital to our victory over Satan is communication. In these verses specifically, Paul is talking about communication in the form of prayer. Prayer concerning the power of God, perseverance of the saints, and the proclamation of the gospel. Specifically in the proclamation of the gospel, he says that you've got to 
communicate properly, you've got to pray about the proclamation of the gospel. And what it means there is the correct use of the mouth when it comes to communication. If we're going to win the battle together, <coughs> if we are going, we are going to win the battle together, and we're not going to win it if we're not together, but if we're going to do that, then we must be able to clearly and continually communicate. One of the most successful military campaigns in the history of the United States was the 1992 Gulf War. Statistically, on many fronts, it was one of the most brilliant and overwhelming military campaigns. You know one of the reasons why? Because the battle plan from the beginning that the United States had in particular was that the first thing they would do is they would take out the Iraqis' ability to communicate. This group could not communicate with this group. This group could not communicate with this group, and so they were in disarray. If you take out the communication, you win the battle. If you take out the communication, good communication is the key to success in any endeavor whatsoever, while the lack of good communication pretty much guarantees defeat. Let me give you several quick examples. For example, if you have two computers that cannot communicate, you're done. Just this weekend, took out my trusty flip phone and had Julie Bond program it so that I am now on Remind. Yay, go me, right? No. But up to that point, if she sent a message, it could not communicate with my phone because my phone was not set up to receive the communication. Without that, you know, it meant something this morning, wouldn't it? If there'd been a notice gone out on Remind and nobody had called me because I was on email getting these whenever I checked my email, okay? But if the notice had gone out this morning and I wasn't on Remind, the services were canceled, I'd probably been the only one here at quarter 10. See, if you can't communicate, all sorts of bad stuff happens. Communication is essential, not only in the computer world, but in the advertising world. Do you know when the Chevy Nova was first introduced in Mexico, it did not sell. Do you know why? Because va means go in Spanish, so the car was called a no-go. <laughs> Bad marketing on the part of Chevy. <coughs> it is true that you have to have good communication in different areas of the country. You know, the phrase, hold steel. Up home, that means you grab an eye beam. Down here, it means don't move. Think about that. Hold steel. True in the world of sports, you've got to have communication. Why, why do coaches call timeouts? Why do football teams huddle? One reason. One reason only. Good communication so we get together and we all understand our roles and what we're supposed <coughs> to be doing. Where would basketball teams be without timeouts? Where would football teams be without huddles if they had no idea what the other players are doing? They get together so they can communicate. Communication is essential if you're going to win in families too. We live in a world today where lightning fast communication with almost anybody on the globe is possible. But our families in general are falling apart faster than ever it seems and part of that part of that is due 
in their preteen or teenage children. I remember some years ago, I either read the statistic, reading a study, somewhere I saw a statistic, I believe, that said, <clears throat> and this was a number of years ago, I have no reason to believe it's gotten any better, but it said that the average American father spent less than one minute per day in quality communication with their preteen children. Now, I don't know how they define quality. But the point is still there. The sad truth is, yes, while we can get our message to almost anybody worldwide today, probably we're putting less time into true, genuine, thoughtful, quality, quality, intense communication than ever before. How many of you remember time when gathered around the evening dinner table there were no electronic devices, and families actually discussed what went on during the day, whether at school or work. How many of you remember those days? No electronic devices, nothing to get in the way, nothing to hamper it. The whole family sit down together, and mom and dad talked, and, and the kids talked, and how, what about your homework today, and all of those things. Do you suppose that has any tie-in to the fact that families were stronger then? Good communication. Generally speaking, I know there are exceptions. Good communication is essential. Communication is one of the greatest keys to success in any successful endeavor or relationship. And nowhere is that truer than in the Lord's church. Nowhere is that truer than in the Lord's church. And brethren, that is why Satan works so hard to make sure we don't communicate the way we had ought to. Please turn to me in your Bibles this morning to verify that. Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Let's verify the fact that without good communication, all is lost. Genesis chapter 11. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 to begin. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Genesis 11 and verse 1. Verse 2. They came to pass as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us bake bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar. I want to stop right there. First thing I want you to notice was, this was a sound plan. It was well thought out. It was sound. The phrase, bake them thoroughly, literally means burn them to a burning. You see, these bricks were typically, normally, sun-dried. They'd sit in the sun, and they'd, they'd, they'd dry, and that's, that's how they made bricks. But these guys had a better plan. These bricks were designed to be better and stronger and more durable than sun-dried bricks because they were going to heat them in the flame, set them up even better. They were going to burn them with fire, burn them to a burning. That's what it means, bake them thoroughly, put them through the fire, make them stronger, better. You might have wondered where they got asphalt in those days. That is a Hebrew word that is translated tar in the, in the New American Standard Version. It's like hot pitch. <coughs> okay, and it boiled up from the sub 
subterranean fountains around Babylon. It's also near the Dead Sea. You might think, if you think of some of these depictions of dinosaurs and all that, the bubbling tar pits, that's the idea that, that you might get, okay? The Bible actually says in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 10 that the valley of Siddim was full of these tar pits. We would also note that this is the same substance that was used by the mother of Moses on the wicker basket. You know how, you know how wicker's got a lot of holes in it, right? In, in this basket made of reeds or wicker that was woven together, that sort of thing. She used that pitch or that tar. It's the same word that is used of that in Exodus 2 and verse 3. Early writers, such as Pliny, were adamant and unanimous in declaring that the brick walls of Babylon were indeed cemented with this gooey, hot, tar, asphalt-type substance. Layard testified that so firmly have the bricks been united, it's almost impossible to get them apart. Archaeologists will, will proclaim it's almost impossible to get the bricks apart that were, that were cemented with this stuff. So not only did they have a great plan, look at verse 4, they had a purpose. Verse 4, they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They had a twofold purpose. It wasn't particularly admirable, but they still had a twofold purpose. They wanted to make a name for themselves. The sin of pride. But that was their purpose. That's why God would thwart it, but... Also, they wanted to establish a rallying point to maintain their sinful and pride-driven unity. Look at verses 5 and 6. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, indeed, now watch this and watch it carefully. Indeed, the people are one. They're one. And they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do now, nothing. Highlight that word, underline it, involve, do something with it. Nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. If they are one people with one language, they can do anything. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. If they can communicate, they can accomplish anything. The key to successfully completing the mission that the Lord has given us as his one New Testament church is to be unified of one mind and one body with one language. We've got to be able to communicate <coughs> properly and godly. So, verses 7 through 9, God says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. God knew if they could communicate, they'd accomplish anything. And because their reasons were less than righteous for doing this, because their reasons were selfish, God said, we're going down there and confuse that language so they can't communicate and they cannot continue with this pride-driven project. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face. Was God's confusing their language effective? Did it stop everything right there? That, that, that stopped it. 
If they can't communicate, they cannot complete the project. If they can communicate, they can accomplish anything. So the key to stopping them is to make sure they do not communicate with one another. And boy, that worked. It was effective. Question. Was Satan listening? Now, the scripture doesn't come around and say, and Satan was listening. Okay? However, we do know from Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6 that Satan knows the scripture. He quoted it when he tempted Jesus. We know Satan knows scripture. We understand that. And so, if Satan knows all scripture, he certainly knows Genesis 11. And therefore, Satan knows that if we as the Lord's church are one, if we are one united people, united in and on the one flawless plan and the perfect purpose of Almighty God, and that we can correctly communicate with each other the way we had ought to, we'll be unstoppable. There's nothing we can't accomplish. Satan knows that. There is nothing we cannot accomplish if we communicate properly and godly. There is nothing. God himself said, if they can, if they can communicate Nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Is that what scripture says? We just read it. Sure it is. And so, what I want for us to understand is that that's true in all our relationships. It's true in our biological family. It's true in our spiritual family, the church. And again, that is why Satan works so hard, so hard to shut down proper, godly, effective communication, because he knows. He knows. And he will do everything in his power to make sure that you and I cannot communicate the way we had ought to communicate. Let me give you some examples. This is where the rubber meets the road. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Verse 15. If we can communicate with proper godly communication, we can accomplish anything. We can be one people with one mind. We have not a pride-driven project, but we have the holiest of projects, the Lord's church to build. We have, if we have one language and we can communicate the way we ought to, the way God told us to, we can, we can win. Hands down. And Satan knows that. Matthew 18. Proper communication, verse 15. To me, one of the most neglected verses in all the Bible. <coughs> Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If your brother or sister, sisters, this is us, you too, it's all of us. If your brother sins against you, how does God tell us to handle it? Proper and godly communication 
The way it has to be done is this. Go to him or her. Talk to him or her alone in love and in private first. Do not hesitate and let the real or imagined offense become bigger than it is. What happens when a brother or sister sins against us, we refuse to go talk to them about it, Satan shuts down godly communication for whatever reason, and we begin to think about it. And we begin to think about it. And what starts out as this little infraction, like a spiritual cancer, what happens to it in our mind? The longer it goes, the bigger it gets. And before long, this one little, this one little molehill of an issue, this one little word, becomes, this person hates my guts. It becomes much bigger than it is. It becomes a cancer, a spiritual cancer. So, don't hesitate and let the real or imagined infraction become bigger than it is. I do not want to see a show of hands, but how many times have you either been on the receiving end of this or the other end of this, and you've seen this happen, don't raise your hands, where, where something was happened between a brother and a sister, and it started out small, and if it had been dealt with right there that day, it would have been over. I say over. It feels like I'm talking here. Over. <laughs> Caught myself. And, and six months, a year, ten years, twenty years down the road, this thing has become catastrophic. If your brother sins against you, go to him. Alone. In private. In love. First. That's godly communication. You used to have a saying. Dump it or deal with it. Dump it or deal with it. You know what that means? It means this. If my brother or sister sins against me, they should eat me up. Somebody says, well, you know, you need to go to that brother. Wow, no, I don't want to do that because this is going to happen, that's going to happen, that's going to happen, and I don't, then let it go. If it's not important enough to deal with the way God said to deal with it, then let it go. Dump it. And if you can't dump it, then deal with it, but pick one of the two. Dump it, let it go forever beneath the blood of Christ. It's gone, forget about it. If it's not important enough to deal with, let it go. And if you can't do that, then go deal with it. But don't stay in the middle of the road and just hang on to it and let it grow into a spiritual cancer. It will eat you up. That's why Satan wants you to hold on to it. Stop godly communication. Listen, if a brother or sister sins against you, don't go advertise this sin to somebody else. Don't go talk to everybody else about what that person did as far as you're concerned. Do not go and do those things to him any more than you would want him to do if the situation were reversed. Listen, I'm sure it's the case of everybody in this room. If you say something that somebody doesn't like, they take the wrong way or whatever, what would you rather have them do to you? You rather have them come to you or go tell everybody else in church where the jerks are? Right? I want them to come see me. Let's work it out. Well, what does it say in Matthew 7, 12? Do unto others as what? You have to do unto you. If I want a person to come to me, if I offend them, whether knowingly or unknowingly, then what should I do to them? Same thing. That's godly communication. And you know what? Satan can't stand that. Satan cannot even begin to tolerate that on the lowest level. Because he knows. If we can communicate like that, we can accomplish anything. 
And that sure ain't going to stand. So what does Satan tempt us to do? Every time. Go behind our brother's back. Talk to somebody else or everybody else first and sin. Go talk to everybody else about what this brother supposedly did to me. Go get everybody else on my side. Go get them to, to form a gang or a posse. We're going to go get that brother now. Boy, i got 16 brothers on my side, and we're going to nail him to the wall. Boy, that's what Satan tempts us to do. Or they get a spokesperson to go after him. Oh, that's a juicy one. We'll get to that in a minute. Listen, the whole personal, prideful, posse mentality is exactly what Absalom did to David. Not going back and read it. You remember Absalom and David? Remember Absalom said to the gate, oh, if I were king, I'd, I'd take better care of you than my father. It's a terrible paraphrase, but that's what Absalom did. He got a bunch of guys on his side to go after his dad. Same thing Judas did to Jesus. Judas went and sold out Jesus, and he came to the whole crowd to get Jesus. That's that posse mentality. And you know, those types of responses are condemned in the scripture throughout. Particularly, in many different words, they are condemned as the sins of the flesh, found in Galatians 5.20. You know what those tactics are listed there as? Let me give you a list. Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, and dissensions. That's what it is. When I go tell everybody else in the world, but I won't go to my brother. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there's the whole spokesperson thing. Ay, ay, ay. In one of the former congregations where I was, there was this habit. Every so often, I'd get this visitor in the office. He'd come in. He'd sit down. He'd start. You know, several people have come to me. And they've said, you're too whatever. You know my question is? Why are they coming to you? If they're problems with me, where should they go? Right? But everybody would go here. And so he'd come in. Well, you know, there's several people that have come to me, and they've said, and it was usually never good. You know what I'd like to have had? He said, just once. <laughs> I've had several people come to me, and boy, we're, we're just so glad you're here. You know, it doesn't work that way. Anyway, several people come to me, and this is wrong, and that's wrong, and whatever. It didn't happen very often, but, but it was always, and so finally I got sick of it. Because you know the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, 22 and 3, if you know your brother has a problem with you, go to your brother, right? Okay? So I finally said to him, I said, who are these people? Well, I, mean, I can't really tell you the name, but you know the people. No, no, who are these? Well, I can't, I can't really tell you the name, but you know, I, I'm not going to do that. Why not? Why not? Because I have a responsibility if I know that my brother or sister's got a problem with me, you're being a stumbling block because you're not telling me who. Because I have a responsibility to go to those people if they don't come to me. Well, I can, I can tell you the names. That's that spokesperson mentality. It was another congregation I served and it got so, so prevalent that people came to me all the time to talk about their problem with some other brother. I finally put a sign on the door. I really did. It, it got bad. I finally put a sign on the door that said something to this effect. If you have a problem with your brother, please make sure you have gone to your brother about the problem first before coming to me about your problem with your brother. They say, that's pretty, that's pretty harsh. 
You should have heard the things I was hearing. It wasn't that harsh. Because they weren't being biblical. Such tactics as those two things are anything but eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Brethren, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And there's going to be times we're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going to be like two porcupines trying to act in the same hole. Okay? We're going to we're going to we're going to get some barbs and we're going to barb one another occasionally. We're humans. We live in a fallen world. It's going to happen. But when that happens, if we want to pursue the things that make for peace, we need to talk to each other about it in private first. No matter who we are. That's godly communication. If we're going to go about it Satan's way, then we need to realize that those tactics are disruptive, divisive, and deadly to the army of God. Because they're shutting down proper godly communication. Listen, friendly fire casualties are still casualties. Okay? When we have friendly fire casualties, it's because we've forgotten who the real enemy is, and that's Satan, according to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. The Lord hates it when we handle disagreements and disputes any other way other than the way he said to. He hates it. How do I know that? Because the scripture says that. Turn to me in your Bibles to Proverbs 6. Proverbs chapter 6. The Bible tells us God hates it when we handle it some of those other ways. Proverbs 6 verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. How much more perverse can it get than running around riding my brother or sister right into the dirt behind his back? He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. See that brother over there? Yeah, let me tell you about him. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. You know what? In this short little passage, we're going to see that phrase twice. He sows discord. Hey, did you, you know, that brother over there, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you. Sows discord. God continues here. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly, suddenly he'll be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates, seven are abomination to him. A proud look. Well, I'm better than that, brother. Let me tell you how bad he is. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Yeah, I'll go get a posse. Feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and look how he puts the icing on the cake of things he hates, one who sows discord among brethren. That doesn't mean that we can't talk about some of the issues we have. We, can't, we can talk out of concern. We can talk out of love, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are times when we need to go to that brother and sister first. That's, what God, that's how you communicate. If we can do that, we can accomplish anything. So I'm not talking about never discussing anything that happens between us. That's not true. But we need to be very, very careful not to cross this line and go out there and continually sow discord. So what do we do? Go, your brother or sister. Be diligent and make every effort to communicate the way God commanded. Reestablish the bond of peace that has to exist between brethren if we're going to be victorious. And notice what it says in Matthew 18. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Isn't that an awesome thing? If he hears you, you've gained your brother. David said in Psalm 133, 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Let me ask you a question. How many relationships in the church could have been saved? 
How many could have been preserved? If the moment there was a problem, those two brothers got together, sat down, and worked it out amongst themselves, how many relationships could have been saved? So knowing all that, why don't we go to a brother or sister who sinned against us more often? Why don't we? Here's one reason. Because communication that can accomplish anything has not one, <coughs> but two equally vital components. Here's why we don't go. Two vital components. Both are essential requirements demanded of each person. You know what the other one is? Hearing. Truly hearing, Matthew 18, 15, is just as vital to proper communication as is the talking. If you do not think that is true, that hearing and listening is just as important as talking, if you don't think that's true, how many of you, when you're having a conversation on your phones and the other person hangs up, how many of you keep talking to them? Not talking about a dropped call. <coughs> well, you know they're gone. They said, well, you don't keep talking to them, right? Because why? There's nobody listening. There's nobody on the What's to do to talk when there's nobody listening? I'm absolutely convinced that truly hearing is one reason we'd rather talk about our problem with a brother to everybody else rather than talking to our brother about the problem <laughs> with us. You know one of the reasons I think sometimes that we don't go? They're, they're, we're going to take this on from all sides. There's a lot going on here. But I think sometimes one of the reasons we don't go if I have a problem with this brother here, and he and I know what the problem is, one of the reasons I think I don't go to this brother, why we don't sometimes do that, is because if I go and talk to that brother, I may find out I'm part of the problem. I may find out that part of the responsibility for the issue between us sits squarely right here. We don't like that. Now, if I go talk to this brother about my problem with this brother, this brother is clueless. He doesn't know a thing about the reality. All he's going to get to my side, and it's real easy to convince him that I'm not the problem. And it's real easy to convince this brother and this brother and this brother and this sister that I'm not the problem. But if I go to the brother who actually knows what happened because he was there, guess what? Maybe he's going to say to me, no, that, that's not really what I said. That's, you're blowing this up here. I may find that the part of the responsibility is mine. And if that's the case, I don't want to go because then they'll find out I'm part of the problem. Of course, the admonition to truly hear is directly specific. Let me say that again. The admonition to truly hear is directly related to the one who sinned in Matthew 18, 15. If you go to your brother and if he hears you. And I've talked about the one going needs to hear, but the one you're going to needs to hear too. And, and this is just as critical. This is just as important. This is a biggie. If the brother or sister you go to is not willing to listen, you're casting your pearls before swine. If they're not going to listen to anything you have to say, and you know this because you tried, Notice it says in Matthew 18, 15, if he hears you, if he hears you, if he chooses to listen. That's the condition. Now, we can't often control the other person, but here's one thing we do need to control. If you, you, yeah, you, you, I mean, if you 
and I are the ones that somebody comes to. We're not the one going to, but we're the ones being come to. Okay? We need to make up our mind that we're going to listen. That person may be totally wrong when it comes to us. But let's make up our minds to be the kind of people who are going to hear. If your brother hears you, because if the person you're going to isn't going to listen, you're just casting your pearls before swine. <coughs> Taking the time and putting in the effort to honestly hear and listen to what the other person is saying is just as essential to successful communication as the talking. For example, if I were to take the best sermon I've ever preached, the best sermon people said, that is the best sermon you've ever preached. If I were to take that sermon and I were to bring it over here to this building, on a Wednesday night at 11 o'clock when there's nobody here to preach it, what good would it do? Wouldn't do any good. Why? Because nobody's listening. I'm talking to the walls. They're not going to respond. Jesus was big on that too, as well. That there ain't no sense talking if there ain't no one listen, listening. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do if the people didn't receive their message? What did he tell them to do? Wipe the dust off your feet. If they ain't going to listen, go find somebody who will. Let me show you a couple of other places just to make that point. Matthew 13, please turn there. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 through 15. Look what Jesus says. It would help if I turn to the right gospel account, right? Matthew 13, verses 13 through 15 says this. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. Seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their eyes are hard of hearing, and their ears they have closed. Jesus said they have closed their own ears, because if they would choose to open their ears, the rest of this verse, I heal them. But they have chosen to close their ears. They're not going to get it. To give you another example of how important truly hearing is, is if we're going to have true communication and be as one. Turn to me to John 12. We talked about this passage in the high school class, uh, high school class, in the adult class. John chapter 12. We know the story about Jesus six days before the Passover, the house of Simon the leper. We know about verse 3, Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He had the money box. He used to take what was put into it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She's kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with me always, have with you always, but me you don't always have. Judas had a personal agenda. Judas had a personal agenda. He wanted to pilfer the group's finances for personal use. Judas did not care about anybody else but himself. He wanted the money put in the box so he could steal it. He wanted to steal from the group. He didn't care about her. He didn't care about the group. He didn't care about Jesus. He sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. He didn't care about anyone but himself. So listen, it wouldn't have made any difference what Jesus said. Jesus responded and said, look, leave her alone. 
This is why. You think Judas heard that and said, hey, great idea, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Is that what Judas did? No. Because Judas was not going to hear, it wasn't going to make any difference what Jesus said. Jesus could have said anything to him, but Judas had made up his mind, he wanted to listen. The disciples, the night that Jesus was betrayed, in Matthew 26, if you'll turn there, we see the same issue. Matthew 26, ain't no good talking if ain't nobody listens. Let us determine to be people who listen when people come to us. Matthew 26, starting at verse 33. Jesus told them they'll all be scattered that night. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I'll never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, Well, you're the Lord, so you know, and I accept that. No, that's not what it says. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. They weren't going to listen. Doesn't matter what Jesus said, they weren't going to hear it. They made up their minds what they wanted to hear, and that's all they were going to hear, and they weren't going to pay any attention. So, <coughs> when somebody cares enough to come to us and correct us, what is usually our first reaction? Defensive, right? Somebody comes and says, hey, now they need to come nicely, okay. Doug, you said the other day, and... and usually some form of defense when somebody who feel attacked. And so proper communication is shut down. But what should we do instead in order for godly communication to take place so that we can continue on, get past the problem, and nothing will be impossible for us? I suggest to you the following. I have an acronym for the word HEAR. Very important. We need to HEAR. And here's the acronym, H-E-A-R. This is what we should do when somebody comes to us. Here's the acronym, so important. H, hearken. It's not a word we use a lot today, but what it means is to give careful attention and to listen carefully. That's what it means, to listen carefully. Really hear what they're saying. What do we tend to do when somebody comes to us and talks to us about some issue that they have with us? We usually get defensive and at least prepare a defense as they're talking. We need to listen carefully. We need to hearken. Number two, E. We need to evaluate what they say. They may be so far off base it is ridiculous. But we need to listen and evaluate what they say. Do they have a point? Do they have part of a point? Are they totally pointless? Be honest, evaluate. A, assess my behavior. We have evaluated what they said now I need to assess my behavior. These two are very close. Evaluate whether or not they have a point, and then really think about, do I do that? Is that what I do? Is that what I did? Is that what I said? Assess. They may have a point. They may be clueless. But I need to look at my own behavior and say, okay, are they right or not? And R, respond appropriately. If they're right, then my proper response is to humble myself and change what's wrong. If they are clueless and they have got it totally wrong and they have no idea what they were talking about when they came to me, then the appropriate response is to go to them and discuss it further and say, look, this doesn't make sense to me because, right? Respond appropriately. That's actually very biblical, that acronym, because James 2, 19 and 20 says, so then my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. As we get ready to close, consider this. 
Looking back to Genesis 11, instead of that setup, question. Does God have a plan in place which is far superior to the one in Genesis 11? Does he for us? Yes, he does. Ephesians 1.4. He's had it placed since before the foundation of the world. Number two. We know God has a plan that is far superior to theirs. Does God have an eternal purpose which is flawless for his church? They have a purpose. God has a much better one, right? Right. Ephesians 3, 10, and 11. Question number three. Can we, if we choose to only communicate with one another according to God's instructions as we've covered in this lesson, can we accomplish both that plan and purpose? Can we? God says you communicate, you comprehend it. <coughs> Conversely, what happens if we don't communicate in a godly fashion? If we let Satan convince us to go through other channels, what happens? Same thing happened in Genesis 11. Chaos, breakdown, disjointed, no longer one. What happens if we just allow that pain to grow and consume us? You know, we may all sit in the same room. Is it possible for people to all sit in the same room yet still be divided? Is that possible? Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, we know from 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 3, where Paul wrote, For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, aren't you carnal and behaving like mere men? He's writing to a congregation of the Lord's church. It's up to us. If there's something that some brother or sister said or did to you that's still eating at you and causing you pain and resentment, dump it. Or deal with it. Deal with it or dump it. If it's not worth the problem it would cause to deal with it, then let it go. Joel. No, I don't have a problem with Joel. Joel did a fantastic devotional this past Wednesday night, and it talked about the same idea of let some things go. And if we can't do that, then we need to communicate, because if we can communicate, brethren, we can accomplish anything. And Satan knows it. And that's why he's screaming in your ear right now. Some of you, maybe. That's why he's screaming in your ear to try to convince you to do anything but go to that brother or sister if there's an issue. question is, who are you going to listen to? This morning's invitation is tied to that same acronym, H-E-A-R. This morning, if you're here, and you've hearkened to the gospel message. You've listened carefully and intently. You have, e, you have evaluated what has been said, not necessarily with this lesson because it wasn't about the salvation process, but you have evaluated what the Bible says you need to do to be saved. You have assessed your own behavior and it's fallen short. Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel. Maybe you've never repented. Then this morning it's time for you to R, respond appropriately. If you've listened, evaluated, and assessed, then you need to respond appropriately by being baptized into Christ. Or if you've listened to this lesson, you've hearkened to it, you've evaluated it, you're saying, hey, this is scriptural, you've assessed your own behavior, and said, I need help. I need help. I need the prayers of the church because I need to respond more appropriately when it comes to godly communication. This is a good morning to make a great new start. God said in Isaiah 1, come let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be why the snow? What an appropriate morning to get the help you need. Become the person you want to be for the Lord God Almighty. If you need to be baptized or you need the prayers of the church,
this morning. Please come as we stand and sing.